The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Prime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And here we are bringing to you the short story, The Lost Mine, which was first published in The Sketch <laughs> on November 21st, 1923. So let's get right down to it and talk about the victim. All right. The victim is Wu Ling, the Chinese owner of a silver and lead mine in Burma who is traveling to London for the sale of shares in the mine. He goes missing in advance of the sales meeting that he was supposed to attend, and his body is later found in the Thames. Right. And it's it's slightly unclear if he owns the mine or if he just seems to have the papers to it. Right. Or if he's working for the Chinese conglomerate that actually owns the mine. Like, yeah, it's, it's unclear, I guess, how vaunted of a personage he is within the mining company in China. Yeah, the mechanisms that are happening here are a little unclear in the story. There's so much more (laughs) troubling things going on (laughs) in this story that I didn't focus on that too much. I did because I really get fixated on logistics, but, uh, (laughs) but yes, agreed. There are other things happening here. So our suspects are basically the people who came over with him in his travels. There's Charles Lester. He's a young bank clerk. He is returning to London from Hong Kong. And he befriended Wu Ling on the voyage over. He agrees to see Wu Ling. At the Russell Square Hotel. They became friends, so he's like, hey, shipmate, let's let's hang later. Correct. Got it. Correct. And then when he goes to see him, he's not there, and so then another Chinese gentleman offers to take him in a super shady taxi ride across London. To take him to see Wu Ling. Yes. And this is where Charles Lester's story gets really weird because he says that he got into the cab with this Chinese servant and they, quote, drove for some time in the direction of the docks. Suddenly becoming mistrustful, Lester stopped the taxi and got out, disregarding the servant's protests. That, he assured us, was all he knew. And we're left with that very odd and truncated ending to Mr. Lester's story. Although he does get arrested. Charles Lester does. Uh-huh. Because everyone is so he suspicious of him. He was like the last person to, yeah, in theory, see Wu Ling. Right. Well, it's also known that he, though he bears an excellent character, he, uh, quote, he was heavily in debt and had a secret passion for gambling. Correct. So there is that. Then we have Dyer also on the ship over with Wu Ling. Unlike Charles Lester, he does not bear an excellent character. 
Mm-mm. at all. He's very shady. And European. And European. Mm-hmm. So, mm, you know, you know what that means. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it means he's very likely mixed up with a gang of Chinese crooks. That was a quote, quote, mixed up with a gang of Chinese crooks. End quote. And how about our third suspect? So then we have Mr. Pearson, who's actually the person who hires Poirot. He's one of the directors for this British mining interest. I'm also going to just be real frank and say that it is not well laid out what this company is. Yeah. It's basically just kind of referred to generally as a company, and he is one of the directors of it. But he was expecting Wu Wang in Southampton. And then he says that he basically waited at the station for him and he never showed up. And so he got really worried. And then eventually he went to Poirot. Right. And it's worth noting that when he goes to Poirot, Wu Ling's body has already been discovered. So Mr. Pearson's reason for hiring Poirot is actually a little bit complicated. And I'm just going to quote directly from the story. This is Poirot speaking in the first person, even though Hastings is supposedly narrating this story as he does all of the stories in this collection. Mr. Pearson called upon me. While profoundly shocked by the death of Wu Ling, his chief anxiety was to recover the papers which were the object of the Chinaman's visit to England. The main anxiety of the police, of course, would be to track down the murderer. The recovery of the papers would be a secondary consideration. What he wanted me to do was to cooperate with the police while acting in the interest of the company. I consented readily enough. So let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Poirot, in his investigations, goes to the hotel... And the hotel tells him that Wu Ling had gone out the previous evening at 1030, never to be seen again. So we're to assume that on Wu Ling's person were those mine documents and perhaps one of those shipmates who was aware that those valuable documents were on him did the deed. And if we had to make a bet, we'd bet that it was poor Mr. Dyer, the shady one from the continent. Right. All of this is kind of confusing. The mine was once a silver mine, and so it was really active. And then it was that they also had lead in it. It was once upon a time a silver mine, and all the silver was taken out. But then there was also lead, which I guess this is why it's called a lost mine. (laughs) (laughs) In part, I mean, also because the papers are lost, But, yeah, the mechanics of this... From the get-go, I was a little perplexed and annoyed by the story because even the title, The Lost Mind, we just recently read The Lost Will. They're just both such not memorable objects to put in a title, so I was already like, wait, what's the title of this story? The Lost Mind, okay. And then both the mine and the mine papers are lost, so it's also just, just a little not quite connecting. But yes, just to be clear, it had originally been a silver mine. The Chinese extracted the rich lead silver ore from the upper part of the ore body, smelting it for the silver alone, and leaving large quantities of rich lead-bearing slag. So basically, when the mine's location was perfectly well known, all the silver was taken out and the lead was left. The lead would now be valuable, but no one remembers where the mine was, except these papers will pinpoint it, and that's why these papers are. Yes, so the the mine... Itself is lost in addition to now these papers becoming lost and the man himself who was carrying them 
lots of lost things here, <laughs> including perhaps one's dignity because, whoa, is this story rather xenophobic? And Dear listeners, we, I think, are very tolerant. You know, we do make discounts when we're ranking the novels about stuck in their timeness. And I know that we have spoken at length about xenophobia and especially Agatha's issues with Asians. Yeah, it's. I mean, she really seems to have a penchant for portraying Asian peoples on the page in a shall we say, stereotypical manner. And I will just quote directly from the story. In the margin, I wrote, Ack! With an exclamation (laughs) point. Like Kathy? Are you Kathy now? I am Kathy now. I I actually pretty much am Kathy. Live action and male. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the only two differences. But um, we have a Chinese gentleman speaking here, and he says, Mr. Lester, he takey those. He say putty them ollie in oh safey place where policemen no looky. It's one of those things where we're not going to harp on it too long because this is just Agatha Christie being stuck in her time. But just for purposes of providing context here, I think it's worth bringing up a term that certainly has painful connotations for many people, and that is the yellow peril which is this xenophobic idea that goes hand in hand with Western colonialism in that Asian people are perceived as being dangerous to those in the West. And I have a quote here from the historian Julia Lavelle, who wrote that in the early decades of the 20th century, Britain buzzed with xenophobia. Respectable middle-class magazines, tabloids, and comics alike spread stories of ruthless Chinese ambitions to destroy the West. And she goes on to talk about how in 1911, an article distributed around the British Home Office titled The Chinese in England, a Growing National Problem, warned of a, quote, vast and convulsive Armageddon to determine who is to be the master of the world, the white or yellow man, end quote. And after World War I, these yellow peril sorts of visions of Asian societies were just really common in movies and on the stage and in novels and in newspapers and just everywhere. And Christie is one of those places where this mindset certainly appeared. We already saw it in a much larger degree in the big four with the character of Li Chang Yen. But we're seeing a smaller version of it here in this short story, which features a supposed Chinese subculture inside of London rather prominently. It's not, it's not done with any sort of finesse or, or any wish to get oh it God, it's right. It's so you know? uncomfortable to read. It's yeah. But actually, this may be even more uncomfortable. And we've run across this before as well. There, I forget which story, short story or novel it was, that made reference to the Oriental mind. But we have another reference here, which is... But to the Oriental mind, it was infinitely simpler to kill Wu Ling and throw his body into the river. Ugh. So we and should we should clear we should clarify here. So what happens? Basically, yeah, let's see what would happen. Basically, what happens is that Pearson, when he hires Poirot, they decide to retrace Wu Ling's steps. And this is where we come back to Charles Lester's oddly truncated story about jumping out of that taxi that he was in with Wu Ling's servant. When Poirot follows up on that story with the hotel, it doesn't really add up because, first of all, Wu Ling had no servant with him at the hotel or on the boat. 
And in the second place, and I'm quoting here directly from the story now, in the second place, the taxi driver who had driven the two men on that morning came forward. Far from Lester's having left the taxi en route, he and the Chinese gentleman had driven to a certain unsavory dwelling place in Limehouse, right in the heart of Chinatown. The place in question was more or less well-known as an opium den of the lowest description. The two gentlemen had gone in. About an hour later, the English gentleman, whom he identified from the photograph, came out alone. He looked very pale and ill and directed the taxi man to take him to the nearest underground station. So... We know now that Charles Lester has been lying for some reason, and Poirot takes it upon himself to go visit that certain unsavory dwelling place in Limehouse with Mr. Pearson, who is also very, very eager to get to the bottom of things. And so that leads them to an opium den, because of course it does. <laughs> because if there's, a, if there's a Chinese person in a Christie story, you can, I think, be guaranteed that there will be an opium den in that yeah, story. Yeah, pretty good odds. Yeah. Yeah. And so they fake getting dinner until the staff basically is like, oh, do you want to go to the secret back room? Right. And then they are given opium, but they don't smoke it, and they just like lie down for a while. So they pretend to get stoned. Then they leave the opium den. And at that point, Poirot pretty much just tells Hastings that he solved the case and what happened. (laughs) Right. There's really limited other things that are happening here. And so, yeah, Pearson had the papers. That's the answer. Pearson did it. Yeah, Pearson did it. So what happened is, and this is where we get into this, that, that terrible passage about the oriental mind. So Pearson met him, met him at Southampton, came up to London with him and took him straight to Limehouse. It was foggy that day. The Chinaman would not notice where he was going. But Poirot's point is, I, he says, I do not think he meant murder, he being Pearson. His idea was that one of the Chinamen should impersonate Wu Ling and receive the money for the sale of the document. So far, so good. But to the oriental mind, it was infinitely simpler to kill Wu Ling and throw his body into the river Uh. and Pearson's Chinese accomplices followed their own methods without consulting him. So Pearson didn't actually set out to have Wu Ling murdered. He just wanted him to be gotten rid of for... So Poirot thinks. So Poirot thinks for the length of the meeting. And so Poirot is essentially blaming it on the quote-unquote oriental mind for simplistically just killing him because that was cleaner and easier, which is just... Really awful. Yeah. Just the idea that there is such a thing as an oriental mind. Anyway, I mean, it's just, it's a it's a way of thinking that we're just not all that accustomed to anymore. So, yeah, this is And then also, great. like, how he gets shares exactly in the mine is a little bit unclear. Because the other thing that I would say about this story is that, really, it's supposed to be a cautionary tale to Hastings. Because Hastings is making bad investments. Right. <laughs> I mean, that is actually the frame of this, is that Hastings is making really bad investments, and Poirot basically like has a very neat amount of money in his bank account at all times. 444 pounds, four and four pence, exactly, which is pretty funny and very in keeping with Poirot's character. I will note that the number four is an extremely unlucky number in China because... The word for death and the word for four are the same syllable, just with a different intonation. 
And I'm pretty sure I'm giving Christy way too much credit by assuming that that was in any way purposeful, but it is an interesting and likely coincidence. He only has the one investment, which he was given, which is the shares in this mine in Burma. Now Myanmar. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We don't call it Burma anymore, but it is called Burma in the story. Right. Uh, Right. And basically the the whole business with Charles Lester is that Poirot surmises that Wu Ling must have told Mr. Pearson about the arrangement between him and Charles Lester to meet at the hotel. So then Pearson basically got this other Chinaman from the gang to pose as Wu Ling's servant. Obviously, Charles Lester knew what the real Wu Ling looked like. And that's why there's this confusion about does Wu Ling have a servant or not? He doesn't. It's just that this man had to pose as the servant. And Charles Lester was not lying when he said that he was picked up and driven in in this sketchy car. He was, however, lying when he said that he just jumped out of the car because he was sketched out. Basically what happened is that he was brought to that certain unsavory dwelling place in Limehouse as the taxi driver reported truthfully and given a drink that was most likely drugged. And when he, quote, emerged an hour later, he would have a very hazy impression of what had happened. So much was this the case that as soon as Lester learned of Wu Ling's death, he loses his nerve and denies that he ever reached Limehouse, end quote. So Lester was lying about the end of his story because at that point he was just nervous about being implicated in the murder, but he actually had nothing to do with it. But Pearson knew that then Charles Lester would be the last person to be seen in company with Yeah, he, he, he's, he's framing him. He's framing him. He said that they became buddies or whatever on the voyage to England. Right. So I think Uh, the cautionary tale about investing, I think the greater cautionary tale is don't talk to your shipmates. Don't be too friendly on a on a boat. You never know what kind of mischief oh my those people goodness, are getting into. No. Did you read the Woman in Cabin Ten, the Ruth Ware I book? I haven't read that, that actually. Did you? Yes, I have read it. And is it good? I enjoyed it. But yeah. it is very much about maybe don't talk to your shipmates. <laughs> maybe maybe that is not going to end well for you. Got it. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the adaptation. For this one, which was good. I, you know, there was this short story is a very is a slight one of Christie's slighter short stories. So there was a bit of padding that needed to be done. I mean, there's a lot of padding <laughs> beyond just the padding of David Suchet. Oh, for Poirot's har, prodigious har, belly. Har. <laughs> I will say this. I started to reread David Suchet's Poirot and Me book, actually off of the recommendation of a listener of ours in Australia. He had written into us at our email account, allaboutthedame at gmail.com. And had mentioned when we were talking about the adventure of the Christmas pudding that the scene in which David Suchet teaches everyone how to open a mango was actually something that David Suchet himself wanted put into the episode because Prince Philip had actually taught him how to do that and he just wanted to put that into the show and it was great fun and very memorable. But in this book, so I, I just opened it up again, 
Poirot, uh, I mean, Suchet does mention <laughs> the lost mine. Do you think he, do you think he gets sa- called by Poirot more than he gets called by his real name? Oh, well, he talks about that in the book, the danger of having this character subsume who you are. But he kind of just made his peace with it because he loves Poirot. I mean, this book is basically about, like, the love story between David Suchet and Poirot. He, he, he kind of succumbed. He succumbed to the character. But he does mention that the episode opens with Hastings and Poirot playing Monopoly in Whitehaven Mansions. And Hastings is winning at first. Of course, by the end, Poirot wins. And poor Hastings is taught a lesson again. But it's a nice way of framing it. And it's kind of fun. I love whenever we see any of our main four having childish fun together. It's true. I really like that Poirot gets into this huge argument about not being able to put hotels on the railroads. I will build a hotel. On Fenchurch Street. You can't build a hotel on a railway station. Do not be absurd, Hastings. There are plenty of hotels at railway stations. But that's not in the rules. Well, then, Hastings, the rules are wrong. Yes. And very good point. Because what railroad station have you ever been to that hasn't had a hotel near it? That's true. Very, very uh, on-point criticism of Monopoly. (laughs) Pretty much all of the good moments from the episode happen over Monopoly. And in the beginning, when Hastings is still doing well, he is sort of doing that thing where people blow on their hands preparatory to rolling out the dice, and Poirot finally loses it. Not your night tonight, old man. Perhaps it is because I do not huff and puff all over the dice like the wheezing grumpus. It's a good moment in the ever-ongoing Poirot-Hastings relationship. Suchet in his book, he also makes the point that they created a Chinatown and Chinese nightclub at their studio in Twickenham. That was much more elaborate and impressive than anything that's described in the short story, I I think. That's my editorializing on it. But you can see the production value in that episode for sure. And it is just sort of interesting. I mean, the only other thing I would say about Christy and her depiction of Asians and the somewhat problematic stereotyping of that is that the Charlie Chan stories were coming out at around this time. No, it's totally, it's totally true. But this is, it's a little bit like saying that you can't criticize Breakfast at Tiffany's, which came out 30 years later. Oh, I'm not saying that you can't criticize it. I'm just saying you can just criticize all of them. I'm just making the point that she's not alone. Oh, no, no, it's all terrible. Nobody should be under the impression that she is somehow unique in her Orientalism. Right. And what's so interesting about Charlie Chan, which is why I wanted to bring him up, is that initially Charlie Chan was seen as a progressive character because Charlie Chan, the detective, is morally upright and upstanding and a contributing member of society. And that was going against the Fu Manchu kind of stereotyping that had been happening in the years before that, which was very much part of the whole yellow peril movement or issue or dilemma, whatever you want to call it. But Charlie Chan now, when we look back on it, has some problematic stereotyping and does not seem progressive at all. The issue was just pervasive in all of the texts that were being created around this time. It's just that she is so popular that we're more often with her than anyone else just reminded of the Orientalism of that period because she's still published. Right. And read all the time and podcasted by freaks like us. So, 
There you go. I'm feeling bad that we've been so critical of the short story. Like, there's one nice moment in the short story, which is very well highlighted in the episode, which is we mentioned there are these two shipmates. One is Dyer and the other is Charles Lester. Right. And they go to the hotel with Dyer's photo to ask, did you see this man around the hotel? Because that's the one that they're really suspicious of. And then in the short story, I actually forget why there happens to be a photo of Charles Lester around. It's basically said, like, conveniently, we had on hand. Well, now I'm criticizing the short story again, but it's, it's certainly a lot clunkier in the short story, isn't it? Yeah, they just happen to have a photo of Charles Lester on hand. And Almost as an behold, afterthought, I produced the photograph of Lester, and to my surprise, the man at once recognized it. But it's this kind of moment of like, oh, they're okay, they're recognizing the one that has the good reputation and in the episode Charles Lester is actually a he's like an investment guru yeah, he right is. correct which is pretty funny because this is again the whole theme of just tying into Monopoly and everything. They're very good at driving their themes home in these episodes. Hastings takes a pamphlet from Charles mm-hmm. Lester and it has Lester's photograph and he just happens to be holding the pamphlet when they go to the hotel and then they're like, oh, but that, but we did see that guy. And it's just a it's it's a good dun 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 moment. So I like that. You know, if you'll excuse me, I think I'll just pop back and have another word with that chap Lester. One or two of his schemes look quite interesting. I must just... Oh, damn. Excuse me, I think one of you dropped this. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Well, I'll be damned. Something is the matter, monsieur? It's him. No question about it. This is the fellow that called to see Mr. Ling. very good I think in the episode that Hastings apparently gives Miss Lemon investment advice and it seems to all be really bad good morning good morning Miss Lemon you're in the high spirits today yes my shares are up another nine and a half points isn't it wonderful I thought I advised you to sell yesterday I know but Mr. Poirot advised me to wait I mean, there's such a distrust of investing one's money throughout Christie. We talked about it in the Sidiford Mystery. Right. The last episode we did was a Sidiford Mystery, and I thought a lot about it when we read this, that Poirot's... Poor investments. Yeah. Well, it's also be wary of what people are promising you. Yeah, be wary of hucksters. If it sounds too good to be true, that's probably because it is. That's going to a bit more of the cynical flavor of these stories. Join us next week when we discuss another Poirot short story. In fact, the final Poirot short story in the Poirot Investigates collection. In the American version. In the American version, that's true. We're already past where the British version ended, but this one is The Chocolate Box. And in the meantime, please do contact us. We would love to get emails from you at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Please contact us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at allaboutthedame. And we are also on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.